who will be our teacher this morning. Uh, Dr. Kaiser is Dean of Education and Vice President of Evangelical uh, of Trinity Evangelical Divinity uh, Seminary. Did I get that right? Evan- Evangelical Divinity School. I never get that right. Anyway, it's in Deerfield, Illinois, and uh, he is professor of Old Testament there and uh, writer of uh, numerous books and, uh, as many of you know, one of my heroes. Um, one of the great thrills of my life was to get a letter from Dr. Kaiser in which he said he had read one of my books. He didn't say he, what he thought of it, he just said he had read it. <laughs> last night at dinner, I asked him if he had led my, read my last book, and he said, boy, I sure hope so. <clears throat> Not really. Not really. Dr. Kaiser is a rare blend of scholar and and uh, devotional heart and high good humor, and I know you're going to appreciate very much his teaching uh, this uh, teaching us this morning. Dr. Walter Kaiser. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I appreciate the reference to the uh, books. Uh, both copies of printed copies are already sold, and uh, so it. It's a delight to be with you this morning, and thank you for being willing to risk it. Probably you didn't get a chance to vote, but I thank you anyway. Uh, It's a delight also to share the good news of the gospel with you. Uh, Some of you are trying to figure out the speech. Uh, The Galilean brogue is Philadelphia. I'm a transplant from the East Coast, uh, missionary to Chicago, and to a number of their sports teams there. (laughs) We have learned intercessory prayer uh, through being there. But as some of you know, prayer does work, and the Cubs are doing much better. (laughs) The Lord only knows what's happening to the Bears right now, but uh, We want to share with you some better news, and that's from the biblical text. I teach the Old Testament. They uh, put me in administration to try to uh, make me behave myself, but I still love teaching and still enjoy ministering. I suppose the real reason why I got into the Old Testament was uh, a 10th grade uh, biology class in which the teacher tried to tell me how things were Uh, really came about, and that was different than what I had heard in church, and different from what I remember what Moses said. And so that took me on a path, and I said, surely there are plenty of people who are working in this area, and I found out there were not. And uh, I went to uh, seminary, and one of my weakest uh, classes was in Old Testament. I had a uh, Hebrew Christian teacher, and uh, he uh, would say, are there any questions? We'd all put up our hands. We had questions. And he would say, that's a good question. Look it up. And uh, we'd ask him another question. He'd say, that's a good question. Look it up. And so I've been looking it up all these years. And uh, (laughs) that's how I got into it. Truly, that was part of the motivation. The other part of it was, how could there be such a large portion of God's word that still we needed to hear in the body of Christ and and which we were most uncomfortable with and had the greatest difficulty with. And so I would like to offer a portion of that text with you this morning. I'm turning to a different passage than what we used the first session. Now, you must not ask that the pastoral staff here do that. A visiting fireman can do it. Uh, 
Uh, but uh, if you had to do it week after week, that would be different. So I don't want to set new standards here in terms of putting pressure on the staff for there won't be any more books from Dave Roper. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> uh, First Kings chapter 17. I'd like to turn to the Elijah narrative. I've been studying the lives of these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And part of my work this summer has taken me into this narrative. I'm interested to know how you preach from narrative and what becomes the abiding lesson for us. Uh, I could do a lot of teasing with you, and I think uh, I'll save some of my mischief for when the pastors get here, uh, because uh, I think probably it's more in-house, about how we read, and especially the narrative texts of the Bible, uh, what in it becomes the abiding authoritative principle from which we make applications? How many things in the biblical text are we to take as normative? And in what sense is it that we're being given the background and the uh, statement? Furthermore, uh, is this just a sort of uh, biographical sketch about Elijah? Here we have Elijah the Tishbite. The chapter reads along. There are all four episodes. If you look here, there is first of all one in the palace as the chapter opens. There is another one in which he is by the brook Cherith or Cherith and the ravens come to feed him. That's in verses 2 through 6 or 7. And then in verses 8 following uh, down to about verse 15, or 16, there you have uh, the widow woman up at Zarephath in Lebanese territory in old Phoenicia, where uh, you have the multiplication of the oil and the uh, flour. And then finally, you have the resuscitation or resurrection of the son of the woman in verses 17 through 24. But you say, but what's the teaching point? <laughs> I came to church hungry today. I don't want to know about, I'm sure this woman had a problem. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but uh, really, <laughs> I've got some other problems too, so don't give me another pack of problems. Uh, let's go to the Gospel of John. Uh, but before you run off uh, and go chasing off to the New Testament, could I tell you that I do think that there is an abiding text here? For it does say that uh, verse 2 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Oh, you say that's in all of these texts. Yes, I know. Then verse 8, it said the word of the Lord came to him again and told him to go up to Zarephath. And then in verse 16, it said that the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. That's the third time. Now, even uh, those of us, if you're like me, you're sort of a slow learner, suddenly you say, now wait a minute, the word of the Lord came, that was introduction, the word of the Lord came, that's introduction, now it concludes that episode with the fact that it happened in keeping with the word of the Lord. This begins to say, this may be something important. And what do you know? The last verse, 24, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. The word of the Lord from your lips is true. Now guess what I think this chapter is about? The word of the Lord. 
Now, you may differ with me, but I do think that there's some evidence for it. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And then finally, as if to make it plain, he gives us in that pivot point for the whole chapter, this time coming at the end, he says, Now I know, not only did this happen in keeping with the word of the Lord, but also that the word of the Lord from your mouth is dependable. It is true. So I entitled this morning's lesson together, Finding That the Word of the Lord is dependable. Finding that that word in my own life can be dependable. See, I don't want to talk about Elijah. You say, you know, what, who is this fellow Elijah? <laughs> I don't know anyone like that. I was visiting in a home out in this area and they had a big great Dane. They called it Elijah. But that's not the same one. This is a man. <laughs> this was not the great Dane. And then it says, Elijah the Tishbite. You say, Tishbite, that sounds like a cracker. Uh, no, <laughs> that is not it. And he says that he came from Gilead, uh, from the inhabitants of Gilead. Gilead, you say. I don't know where that is. Uh, let's see, Portland. But Gilead, I, I have no idea. Well, Gilead's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Rocky territory, uh, all uh, basalt rock there, lots of outcroppings. Matter of fact, uh, they probably called him that, Rocky. He came from that area there. <laughs> this fellow is rustic, ready to go. Matter of fact, there's no introduction. I was reading along in chapter 16, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite. I said, Beg your pardon? <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden, boom, here he comes. And where do we find him? Elijah the Tishbite, Rocky, from across the way there. Out in the boonies, here he comes, walking into town. He goes right into the palace to Ahab and says, quote, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, in whose presence I stand, in whose presence you stand, son, you're in the presence of the king of Israel. But now he had an idea of being in the presence of God, which was much more important. He said, There will be neither dew nor rain these next years except by my word. 10-4, over out. And there he was. <laughs> You say, the, the weird, weird. Uh, what's he doing there? Just walking, waltzing right in. Uh, you know, this is your humble servant. Uh, let me introduce myself. No introductions at all. <laughs> they didn't stand up and have an opportunity to shake hands or anything. He just came right in and says, As the Lord, the God lives, the God who made the heavens and the earth, in whose presence I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Your word? Who are you? Who are you? He is the one who serves the living God. He is the one who represents the word of the living God. No dew, no rain. I don't get the point. What is the point? What's the connection between dew and rain? And there is a point. There's a biblical point. It goes way back to creation. Do you remember that the Lord God made man out of the dust of the ground? And that when man and woman fell... Guess what happened? The dirt got into trouble too. There was a curse that passed on the dirt. And guess what happens in not only biblical times, but all the way down into current history too as well. That whenever there comes a groaning upon the land, a spiritual groaning, that when there we get so bogged down in the awfulness of our own wickedness and sin, the biblical text says, even the dirt groans. Even the dirt groans. And what, guess what happens when God's people start getting right? When there is a righteous minority, 
If you understand me, I'll give you another term, but you must listen closely. Whenever there is a moral minority, did you hear me carefully? Whenever there is this cadre of men and women, that few who for the sake of the word of God will walk to a different drumbeat and seek the guidance of the living God, for their sake there comes substantial healing. Yes, even to the summer crops. Yes, even to the fall harvest that's now being brought in. So as goes the preaching and the hearing and the reception and response to the word of God, this fall and this winter, so will go the spring crops in any given country on planet earth. I dare to proclaim to you that that's a biblical principle. That's a biblical principle. And moreover, that in the whole redemptive process, says Romans 8, that you have the whole creation groaning in travail, in which the streams, in which the environment, in which the trees and the dirt is crying out, waiting for the redemption that's found in Christ Jesus our Lord. So says Romans 8, verses 22 following. That's when ultimate redemption comes. So, how can we find that God's word is dependable? I think we can find it, first of all, in verse 1, when we desert our God. We'll find that that word is dependable. That word which talked to us about this link, this spiritual link, between the, the progress of the moral few, the, that remnant, that righteous minority in any city, in any congregation, for the sake of which... God is able to extend days of blessing. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Had there been ten righteous, ten righteous, for the sake of ten, God would have spared those five cities of the plain, in which you have Sodom and Gomorrah and Adam and Zeboim and Zobah, five cities of the plain. Oh, you say, yes, but they're only wide spots in the road. There are more than that. Matter of fact, we have now, though we have not dug up the five cities, we've dug up the cemetery from the five cities. Over in present-day Jordan, on the east bank of the, of the uh, Dead Sea, uh, towards the southern end, uh, almost across from Masada. Those of you who have been to Masada and have looked across that uh, shallow end of the southern end of the Dead Sea. On the other side, you'll find up in the foothills Bab Edra. Bab Edra, B-A-B, New word E-D, uh, new word D-R-A, Bab Edra. There we have located uh, the actual graves of the people from these five cities, covering a period from 2000 to 1800 B.C. And we now have accounted for 500,000 individuals, half million. Now, there's four, if that represents some 200 years, maybe four generations or more, that means we're talking about 50,000 people for the sake of 10 righteous 50,000 people could have been spared. It makes the figure much more dramatic. It makes the preaching of God's word much more important and makes it more important for the substantial health and benefit. Yes, not only spiritually, but also physically. For there is a linkage between a people seeking God and the productivity of the land. This text says that this man's very name embodied the whole of theology. Elijah, the Eli part of it, the first part, is El is God, and the I is the 
personal pronoun, my God, is Yah, or is Jehovah, in shortened form. And so his name was a testimony. My God is Jehovah. And he comes from this rough territory. Yes, but you say, I tell you, they don't make saints like that anymore. I can't be that. I'm no Elijah. And the Bible knew he would say that. It really did. Because in James 5, it says, don't make a hero out of him. I'm giving you the marginal reading. Some of you are looking for that. I, I have wide margins in my Bible, I should warn you. I told the earlier congregation. And uh, so some of my marks are marginal. And you must, uh, <laughs> you must be careful about that. Uh, the Bible, in the text itself... That's inspired, but what I say is perspired. And uh, so you can tell the difference, no sweat. But at any rate, uh, <laughs> back in the biblical text here, it says in James chapter 5, verse 17, it says, uh, don't think too highly of him, because this man, Elijah, was a man of like passions as we are. That means uh, he was cut out of the same cloth that we are. He was made exactly the same stuff that we are. All of our kind of fears, all of our kind of hesitations, all of our phobias. <laughs> Talk about phobias. How many times does the Bible have to say, fear not, fear not? <laughs> it's because they got phobias. That's what they have. All kind of phobias, you know. And if they had counselors in that day, they would have all been there. Phobias. Because the biblical text has to tell them, fear not. But he said, this man was a man of like passions as we are. He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed again and it rained. You say, yeah, but not my prayers. <laughs> Listen, the weatherman has nothing to fear from me. <laughs> yeah, well then, shame on us. Because the biblical text comes back and wants to tell us about our God. doesn't want to tell us about Elijah. He wants to tell us about our God. And it wants us to know that the word of this God is dependable and it is true. And that uh, when we abandon and when we desert our God, we need to know that he calls us back to himself oftentimes through a messenger. He graciously sends this man, Rocky, Elijah the Tishbite, and he comes. And what does he tell? He reminds us of our relationship. He reminds us of our special relationship as the Lord, the God of Israel. He calls them back to their covenant relationship and to that great promise plan that God had had from the very beginning. The same plan that we still are on. And he talked to them about that God of Israel. And so saying, he snapped to attention, or at least tried to snap to attention, the heart of this man, uh, Ahab, who was so shaken, so vacillating because of his wife, Jezze. I call her that because I've read the text so many times. But Jezebel had imported her own kind of little worship center. She had brought in the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, and they were all on the tax rolls. They were all eating off of the tithes given by the people of God. And here was a real contest that was warming up. And so he speaks of our knowledge of God. He speaks of our relationship to God. And he speaks to of our consciousness of his presence. He says, whom I serve, which literally means before whom or in whose presence I stand. So he was conscious of standing in the presence of God. 
And what does God do in order to call us back to himself? Sometimes God gives us graciously his word, but we say, oh, I've heard that, I've heard that all the time. A word from our sponsor, a word from, you know, you turn on the TV, you turn on the radio. Everyone has a word, everyone has a message, and you go to church, and guess what else? A word from our pastor. And so you all the time get this word, word, word. We're sick of words. Our, our, our whole uh, uh, contemporary civilization is being buried in words. And so what is one more word? Yeah, the difference here is in the word and in the source of that word. It comes from the living God. So we ask for a whole different point of view. And that word is a reminder that if I can't hear the word of God and through the preaching, my heart still isn't made sensitive. And one of the most important things of all, I don't respond. I hear and I say, that's true. Mark that T. Well, so does Beelzebub too. If you were to give a quiz to the devil, do you think he would miss? I mean, on real factual questions, true or false, I'll bet that he would get them all... Well, I shouldn't say bet. I'll prophesy you a nickel that he would get them all right. (laughs) He would just go right down the whole list and mark each one of them. So the devil is actually a fundamentalist. Now, the reverse is not true, but at least you should understand that he has these things uh, all down and is conservative, evangelical. What are all the other good words we use these days? But at any rate, there it is. They're all down and all organized. But when we can't hear that word and I don't respond to that word, I say it's true, but I, like the evil one, don't make a response. I leave the house of God and I don't say, Lord God, that's me. I need help in that. By your grace, I purpose to change here and here because your spirit has put its finger on my life. There, these things are out of tune. I know it. I know it. I know it right well. I want help with it, and I do purpose. I purpose in your presence before you. Aid me. Aid me. Now, that's the most significant thing that happens in a service. Most significant. Most crucial. It is world-changing. It is uh, to the effect of bringing health to this whole community. More than any other decision that's made in the halls of government, more than any other decision, as important as they may be, the future, the destiny of future elections, of future economies, lie here in this audience this morning. As goes the response to our hearts to the living God, so will go the prices when you go to the checkout counter this week. There is that correlation. It is close. It's a shame that we have been too mealy-mouthed and we have hesitated to say it. But there is that close nexus. Now, the biblical text says that when we can't hear that word, then God removes some of the assumed gifts of life. Only God can give rain and only God can withhold it. And so when man hurts, nature hurts. And so also are the products that come from nature and from the dust of the ground. And so he said there will be neither dew nor rain these next years except by my word. What makes the difference here? God's word. And the response to God's word. Do you and I know that that word is dependable? Could ours be the generation that fights for the inerrancy? And I do too. I won't brook any nonsense on that. I am so, so awfully upset deep into the pit of my soul over what is happening with those who have the responsibility of teaching the word of God. I can't tell you how upset I am and how they 
fall over each other to say how they no longer believe in the dependable truthfulness and the in the uh, uh, veracity of that word and that it is inerrant. They no longer accept that by and large that's become the in thing theologically. It matters no difference what denomination that a person is, what group they're in. It seems to have spread like a disease, like a cancer through all of uh, modern theology and churchmanship. But I must tell you that uh, even though we cannot come down to that word itself and though we have that word, ours could be the generation that fought for it. There were those evangelicals that said, we will brook no nonsense on inerrancy, but failed to respond to that word, failed to respond to it, or toyed with it and made it into a wax and nose in which the Bible means this and now means that and now means that, and it means everything, and therefore eventually it meant nothing. It meant nothing because we had played with it. One of the great things you and I have been taught if you've had your education and schooling in grammar school on through since 1946, is there's a difference between what the text meant when the writer gave it and what it means to me. What it means to me is separate and different from what it meant. We've been taught that in school. Do you remember in late class, they said, now, who gets anything out of this? Uh, How does this turn you on? What does it say to you? And that has been one of the most subtle attacks aimed dead center at the whole doctrine of Scripture and the Word of God. But I must tell you a second point, verses 2 through 7 here, in which the text goes beyond that and talks about when we don't deserve God's ministers. We can find that His Word is dependable in another situation. Not only in those situations when we abandon our God, but also when we don't deserve His ministers. And so what does God do? He directs some of his messengers to leave the public scene. We can see this happening here in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here and turn eastward and hide in the brook Kareth. What was he to hide for? Well, you say protection. I don't think so. I think he was to hide here deliberately to make the word of God scarce. There are several times in the Bible when it became difficult after a time of the plethora of an abundance of the word of God, then with no response, then God withdrew that and put his messengers out back so that no one heard them. And I think that's what is happening here in this word to hide. Elijah was hidden not for his protection, but to prevent the people who didn't wish to act on the basis of what they heard from hearing that word. It is like the time in 1 Samuel, where you remember when God finally spoke to Samuel, and he called him that night, Shmuel, Shmuel, Samuel, Samuel. And the kid jumped up and ran over to Eli, and he said, yes. He said, what do you want? He said, you called. No, he said, go back, you're dreaming. He went back, and, and it's Shmuel, Shmuel, and he ran again. And he, Eli was a little bit more thoughtful this time. He said, if you hear that again, you say, speak, Lord for your servant is listening. And the Lord communicated to him. The Lord gave him a word. The text says, as it introduces that, the word of the Lord was precious in those days. That's the older rendering, which doesn't mean that it was sentimental and dear. It means that the word of the Lord was scarce in those days. You couldn't find it for love nor money. And that God spoke was significant. 
In Isaiah 30, verse 20, it says, Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. The awfulest words in Scripture probably are Amos 8, verses 11 and 12. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. A famine for hearing the word of the Lord. Talk about junk food. Yeah, I suppose we should be concerned about carcinogenic foods and about uh, eating uh, those things which are not balanced and good for us. But what about junk theological diets? What about junk food in which we get theological rickets and who knows whatever else because we're not being nourished on the full food, a good, healthy meal, the Word of God. Nourishing ourselves in our own homes, reading the Word of God personally. Nourishing and being nourished in the teaching and preaching ministry. There are huge places in America. And you must be thankful. You must be abundantly thankful to God for you are an exceptional congregation here. You are an exceptional one. But I must tell you with grief and with deep pain that it is my judgment that the majority of the American pulpits are not those that are giving God's men and women food. They're setting forth a few trinkets, a few happy things. Of course, it's what the pew wanted. But I must tell you, they're starving. And the famine has already begun. The famine has already begun. And the difference, it seems to me, is that when the word is preached, that if it's received with joy, and if it's received with response, God blesses that and multiplies it. And it goes on. But I think that when God, uh, when we don't deserve his ministers, God often directs his messengers to leave the public scene. And that's exactly what happened here. We would have done the, res- the opposite, of course. We would have planned for big meetings, a whole new offensive. Uh, we would have put on commercials and done it in the American way with lots of ballyhoo. But our Lord is wise and he knows what he is doing. And so he deprives those uh, who were not responding to that word, and so he sent him over there to the brook. Now, you must have some sympathy for Elijah, too. <laughs> I wonder what he thought. <laughs> Lord, this is no place to minister. <laughs> My sitting out here in just this rocky crag up here, and nothing but birds. I mean, this is for the birds, just to have birds, and the ravens, too, Lord. Remember Leviticus? It says they're unclean. There, chapter and verse. I don't want any birds feeding me. Well, the Lord says you're not to eat the birds. They're only waiters. And so they're bringing food, you know. And there is a difference here, too. And, and I think that, that God brings these ravens. You say, yes, but why the ravens? I think God wants to, this man to know that he is in charge of nature. He must know that. He must be prepared for one great day. Next chapter, in chapter 18, when on one afternoon, he's going to get a short prayer of about 60 words. And he must pray down fire from heaven. That's quite an assignment. But you don't prepare for that sort of message, sort of offhandedly. I'll give him the best I have. Uh, just uh, out of the barrel, as they say, you know. Out of the overflow. 
No, this man knew God and during those three and a half years, God was building into him what must come forth on that one grand moment when he has to pray and a whole life is behind 62 words. And so I take it here that though God could have sent angels, wouldn't that have been nicer? I mean, to be waited on by angels? Certainly. (laughs) You would think that would be more appropriate for a man of God. Uh, Or why not have Obadiah feed him? He was feeding a thousand uh, or 100 prophets, 50 in one cave and 50 in another. Put me on the same roll. Send some over from Secretary of State, Obadiah, who is in Ahab's government. That would be better. But birds, birds, why birds, you know? And I think God is wise in what he does here. He wants him to feel part of the grief of his people. It's one thing to give the bad news. It's another thing, too, to empathize along with your people in that same situation. And so I take it here, God also tests and often tests his messenger while he demonstrates to us that there are times when we don't deserve the good word that comes. We've taken it for granted. It's hard to miss it these days. You've got to be fast on the dial as you flip across on Sunday morning on a radio, on AM and FM, not to get a religious broadcast. Why, you're bound to get caught. There's someone on there preaching the old gospel. And you go to TV tube Sunday morning. You've got to be fast to get by it. Uh Uh-oh, there comes one of those guys. And you've got to go very rapidly. The word, the word, the word, the word. And then suddenly there is no word. And that could be the silence of God could be deafening and it could indeed come. No, let it be this day that this congregation in this part of Idaho, these parts of the United States, that there's a recognition that goes up and first of all is that of adoration and thanksgiving to God. Thanks be unto God who has not only sent his son but has given to us a word, has given to us an explanation has given to us an interpretation, has given to us the scriptures, which are dependable, which are dependable. So God often makes that word scarce so that we might be driven back to himself. But there's a third situation. A third situation comes in the next paragraph, verses 8 through 16. For the text says that, would you believe it, sometime later that brook dried up. How could it be the only place where a person could find a trickle of water? And then, lo and behold, that came to an end. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go at once to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath doesn't mean much to us. It's not on our itinerary. We've not been there. I've not been there. It's Zarephath alongside of Sidon. Sidon, Sidon. I've heard of that. Sidon, yes. Let's see, that was in the news recently. There's Beirut and Tyre and Sidon, right down the coast there. Sidon also, it dawns on me suddenly. That's where Jesse came from. That's where all this mischief came from. Oh, Lord, don't send me up there. That's Gentile territory. Don't send me there. Me, a good kosher uh, prophet, that I should go up there. Lord, don't send me there. But the biblical text says go. And God wants to pull a little bit of irony here. There's a little bit of fun. The very source from which the evil had come in Israel, where all the prophets of Baal and Anat and Asherah had come, right where Jezebel's father was reigning and ruling as king. So God has prepared someone 
already in the missionary movement. There's someone there, a widow woman. Oh, probably a rich widow woman. No, wrong again. It's a starving widow woman. She is out collecting her last meal. Here comes, she's out getting a few sticks. And he comes to her and he said, uh, oh, by the way, it's a long trip across country. There's a price on this man's head. Anyone who finds Elijah dead or alive, Ahab wants him. So what does he do? He doesn't take the late afternoon El Al flight over to uh, Sidon. Oh, no, he must hike. This is 90 miles cross country up and down and to avoid being seen unnecessarily. And he comes and he finds a widow out at the town gate. And he called to her. He said, would you please? Oh, the biblical text here, the Hebrew is even a lot nicer. It's gracious. He doesn't come up to her. Hey, lady, <laughs> you, know, you know, I'm a, I'm a prophet. <laughs> Look here, you can tell by my chevrons. I got a PhD. <laughs> you know, get some water. You hear? There's none of that at all. He doesn't come up there and command that. He said, would you please give me a little drink of water? How graciously God sort of grades his questions and level of difficulty. And how important first steps of obedience are. You know, a drink of water. Look, give me a good job. What do you think I am? Just nursery duty all the time? I'm, I, I can teach. I, 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 I've got training. You want to give me the diapers? What do you mean this is sort of... And the text says here, a little drink of water. And she is on her way, and he says, would you add a cookie too? <laughs> Verse 11. Uh, I know, it's marginal there, but at least you can... Uh... She said, he said, a piece of bread. Uh-oh, with that he did it. He happened to have hit a sensitive nerve on that one. You can almost see her turning around on that one. And she says, as surely as the Lord your God lives... Oh, that's pretty good. As surely as Jehovah, that's a personal name. That name, do you notice in your Bibles, it's spelled in capital letters? That doesn't mean that's where you hit the pulpit. But it does mean that it is important. It is important because that always represents Jehovah, or more technically correct, Yahweh. The personal name for those who have personal relationship. Elohim is the name used for God of creation, the relationship that he has to all of his creatures. But the Bible rather consistently has this as a special name. And then she says, Jehovah, your God. That's interesting too, because you would think that the Lebanese would have no dealings with the Israelis. The problem in antiquity is about dead center to what it is today. Dead center. The Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, as he lives, he is the living God. What a theology this woman has. He is not a concept. He's not just an icon. He's not just a force or the force. He is living, living person. She replied, I don't have a cookie. And I only have a handful of flour in a jar and a little bit of oil, and I'm gathering a few sticks, as a matter of fact, to take them home to make a meal for myself and my son. We may eat it and die. Because the famine was severe, not only in Israel, but there was no water also up in Lebanon too as well. So what did Elijah say to her? Oh, fiddles. Give me a bunch of stuff. I've walked a long way. I'm serving the Lord. The Lord sent me to you. You get me some. You hear? I don't care how you get it. Go borrow some. 
No, that's not even in the margin. Uh, <laughs> Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There it comes again. Phobias. Don't be afraid. Scared? Sure she was. Scared of what? She was scared because she was down to her last dime. As we would say, this is it. Honestly, she had not another place to go. She was a widow woman. Oh, Lord, couldn't you have sent me to someone else? I'll bet there are a lot of rich widows in, in Israel. Why couldn't you have picked one out for me? Here, look what you did. Sent me to this woman. Oh, no. She doesn't even have oil. I mean, just the basics. I ask her for water and a cookie, and she doesn't have the cookie. And he said, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said. But first make a small cake of bread for me. What? <laughs> Why does he say, make some for yourself and then if there's any left over, I'll share a little bit, okay? No, he says, make it first for me from what you have. Bring it to me and then make yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel. Ooh, 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 ooh. Don't bring that word up. <laughs> That's awful. I mean, you want a cookie? Don't say Israel up here. Don't bring that up. That's a nasty no-no word. Don't you mention that. But this woman must know exactly what the woman in John's Gospel, chapter 4. See, I have read the New Testament. And uh, John's Gospel, what does it say there? It said that salvation is of the Jews. This woman must know the same thing. What advantage hath the Jew? Romans 3, much. Because to them were given the oracles of God. The whole plan of salvation. God didn't put it up in space. He didn't write it with a skywriter. He didn't put it in one of the planets so that at night when it shines, it says, for God so loved the world, etc. He put it on planet Earth, our kind of world. And he put it right where history meets east meets west, where Asia and Europe and Africa come together, where the Occident and the Orient come together where the whole of two cultures come together right in the middle of that. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son and God sent his word. And so he mentions that here. He says that very deliberately. This is what Jehovah the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until, until the Lord gives rain on the land. And the woman says, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Are you kidding? No, that's not there. Verse 15 says, she went and she did as Elijah had told her. She went and she did. Would you? I don't know if I would have. I think I would have said, how do you know? <laughs> that, that's the typical thing. Most of us, though we may have been born, I was born in Pennsylvania, um, but I think there's a little bit of Missouri in all of us, or as they say, Missouri. We say, show me, show me. How do you know? Give me proof, give me evidence, you know. And so here too as well. But the text says, no, she went and she did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family, for the jar of flour was not used up. And the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Wonderful Elijah. No. Wonderful Lord. And great dependable word of God. Do you trust the word like that? Do I trust that word like that? 
Do we live by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God? Or are we just counting on it for insurance? One free trip to eternity in case of death prior to the return of the Lord. But everything else, I mean, as real pragmatic Americans, hard-nosed business people, look, you've got to make it on your own. God helps them that helps themselves. Hesitation's one, too. So there you have... uh, (laughs) There you have that great theme, you know. And that's the American system at all. But the biblical text invites us to come back and to trust the Word of God. When we come to the end of our resources, we can find that that word is dependable. When we desert God and abandon him, and when we ourselves don't deserve his messengers and his word, and now thirdly, when we come to the end of our resources, what does God do? He provides in unexpected places. Zarephath is terribly unexpected. I mean, Sidonian territory, Jezzy's backyard, the very uh, heart of all paganism, this Gentile territory. There's a little bit of missions here too. I don't know if you see it. People miss the point that missions are endemic to the Old Testament. That was the whole point. God gave light to Israel so that they might be a light to the nations. He told Abraham that in your seed shall all the nations, all the families of the earth be blessed. And he had just given a list of them in chapter 10, the table of nations, 70 of them. He uses the same phrase, all the families of the earth. And so these are all the families that are to be blessed. And don't tell me that missions is not the heart of it. It is the heart of it. And that's what the church is all about. Yes, to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So I take it that God provides in unexpected places and unexpected people too. A widow woman, she doesn't have the resources here. A Gentile, a Sidonian, a Phoenician, but nevertheless a kind, benevolent soul and apparently one in whom the grace of our Lord had already begun his work. For she says, as the Lord your God lives, And so he provides in unexpected ways, too. God provides not only in unexpected places and unexpected people, but unexpected ways. And he provides through this very section in which he multiplies the oil and shows that he can give the increase. Psalm 84.10 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor And no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Nothing. Nothing. And no good thing. But note the condition. Trusting him. Placing everything in him. Very rarely are our circumstances as desperate as were those of this woman. And very rarely have we been put into a bind so hard that we should share the very last bit. I mean, it's all right to share out of our abundance. It's all right to give something in the collection when it's going well. But what about when the business turns? What about when the drawer is filled with bills? What about that ministry when it comes to the hard times here too as well? You say, yes, but oil here is an emblem of the Holy Spirit. It always is in the Bible. I doubt that. I think oil here in this text is nothing more 
than a symbol of the mighty presence of the living God who by his word took the basic stuff of life, the staff of life, bread, and multiplied it because of that word. Well, there's one last instance here. And some of you are praying for that last point. Here it comes. It's verse 17 through 24. 17 through 24. And this text takes up a uh, fourth situation, and that's when we've abandoned all hope. The text begins in a marvelous way. It says, uh, now the translation I have in front of me this morning said sometime later. <laughs> I worked on this one also, but uh, uh, the boys missed it here. Uh, the, the text says literally, after these things. After these things. Uh, that's an extremely important transitional point. Having seen what God did, now God is going to take your step number two. You ever notice that? That's why some of us don't want to go through the lessons. We still want to work on lesson B because we're afraid of what C is. We say it's going to be a little harder. And growing up is hard. Let's face it. Growing up is a lifelong process. Some people claim that they're finished growing up in the Lord. If you have... Well, may the Lord be with you. You're going shortly. You are going home, as far as I know, from all scripture that I know. So if you've finished the maturation process, uh, may the Lord be with you. Greet the saints for us when you get there. But for all the rest of us, it's lesson after lesson, and it's hard because each lesson gets more difficult, as you remember from school. That's what was hard about fifth grade. Because fifth grade was harder than fourth grade. But looking back on it now, from tenth grade, it was nothing, you know, or whatever grade it was, as we went along in that whole process. But I am impressed by these words. It was after these things that the woman's son fell sick. Does this mean that we pay for successes? Does this mean every time that we have a miracle or a, a very special answer to prayer, look out when the other shoe drops? That's an awful view of God. Awful view. But I, have, I know some Christians that do that way. That's called voting against yourself and the will of God. Think what would be the awfulest thing. And that's what the Lord wants me to do. And uh, that's not fair. That's not biblical. That's not according to the picture of our Lord. But I want you to know in this particular text that I think it was that after they were prepared for a harder step of growth, then God introduced this next step. Had she not been willing to take that first step of going for the water? And then had she not been willing to go and use the last bit of flour and the last bit of cooking oil? Then all these other steps would have been uh, uh, in vain. I mean, they just wouldn't even been offered at all. But we find here that after these things. So I think verse 17 is very, very important. And I find quite a spiritual principle in that. It was so that she might believe and that she might come to know more about the dependability of the word of God. And that we too might be able to come to know that word, how dependable it is. And so the text says sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. And he grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, What do you have against me, O man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? 
I think that's how you say it, with an accusatory tone. You just say that there. What is it? And right away she went back to remember her sins. I don't know what it is, but the evil one will always try to tempt us with that old wine. You know, your sins are forgiven, but they're not forgotten. <laughs> the Lord remembers. Every time you come before him, he said, well, 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 look what we have here, Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Well, you just wait, you rascal. You wait, because I remember you. Biblical text doesn't say that. Our sins are forgiven, and they're removed as far as the east is from the west. You know what? That's Old Testament. That's all the way back in Psalm 103. How far is the east from the west? That's pretty far. They never meet. If he said north to south, you have two poles. They would have met. But east to west, there's no meeting point. Yeah, but someone said, well, then how come he's omniscient? I thought, if you say that he can't remember my sin anymore, how is it that he uh, can't forget? There, now I got you. And I really was. Uh, that stumped me the first time I heard that question. I reared back on that one and said, boy, that's a good one. And then I remembered, you're supposed to keep your finger on the text. That's what I tell my students. All the time when you teach, keep one finger on the text. Point with this hand, put this one on the text. And uh, there it goes. <laughs> Sorry about that. I get so excited here. This uh, microphone comes off. But when you, uh, when you switch, then put the other finger on the text and point with this hand. But at any rate, there you have, I think, the, the theme, which was that he remembers our sin against us no more. That's the full biblical text. He has taken our sin and cast it, if we have been forgiven, he has cast it into the depths of the sea. Who is the pardoning God, says Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who can pardon like you can? For you've taken all of our sin and you've cast them into the depths of the sea. I remember in our young people's group, we used to sing, gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sin are, are gone. And we even ended it up with G-O-N-E, gone, which was the coda on the end of it. It's biblical. It's biblical. And I don't know how many of God's men and women who have sensed forgiveness and they're thankful for forgiveness and they keep remembering what God has chosen to remember against us no more. But she says, my sin, my sin. I suppose that's what it was. And the biblical text says, no, not at all. For as a matter of fact, he said to her, she came to him and she said, what have I done? Did you come to remind me of this? Verse 18. And then he cut loose and he said, oh, keep quiet, woman. I'm tired of this stuff. I got cabin fever too. Do you think I like this? I'm a great teacher. And what do I have? One pupil. And I only have you. And you are now just giving me a lot of guff. I'm tired of this. The Bible says women should be silent. And now listen <laughs> See, I made all that up to get your interest. On any rate, though, <laughs> uh, the text, he says, give me your son. I like it in Mendelssohn's uh, oratorio with uh, Elijah. I think it's a baritone voice that comes in and very beautifully says, give me your son. It's so quieting. It's such a beautiful point in the oratorio. Uh, and uh, the, she, is, she hands him over and he took the child from her arms he knew that she was hurting he didn't castigate her this wasn't a time for a sermon this was time to tell her about trusting it was a time give me your son and he took that child and went up to the upper room that 
was his special quarters where he was staying. And he stretched him out on the bed. And he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? And some of us want to say, Easy, easy, Elijah, you're talking to the Lord. Uh, But the Bible reports what he said. And then he stretched himself out over the boy three times and he cried, Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him. And he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and he carried him down. And he doesn't say to her, there. <laughs> no, I hope next time this will teach you a lesson. <laughs> Isn't that true? Now you aren't like that, but out east they are. They're very much like that. I'm telling you these things for a prayer request so that you would know how to do it here. But not this man. He gave him to his mother and he said, look. Look, your son is alive when we've abandoned all hope. They tell us that an average evangelical congregation, an orthodox conservative fundamental congregation, 60% of the audience that you speak to are facing life and death situations. 60%. Do not toy with them. Do not sort of... uh, have it so jocular and be involved with uh, and it's so glossy that you don't realize that there are some families that are right on the brittle edge. There are some sons and daughters that were at deep war with their parents. There are husbands and wives that are just down to the point where they're hardly speaking to each other. There are some economic issues that have got some people right at the bend to the road, they don't know which way to turn. I'm talking about evangelicals. I'm not talking about the liberals. I'm not talking about those that don't go to church. I'm not talking about other denominations. I'm talking about evangelicals. That's what they tell me. I don't know. I've known enough to know that God's men and women come with heavy hearts. Listen, does anyone ever get down to such a desperate point where the only child that you have and you've longed for is now in your arms dead? Talk Psalm 139, even before we went into our mother's womb, he knew us, and all the days of our life were known. Yes, he knew me while I was being sewn together and stitched in fiber and sinew. And if God knew me that long ago, he knows my situation here today. And he knows that his word is dependable and true. I beg you for the gospel's sake, for the name of the Lord Jesus, whom I know you love, and whom you're trusting with all of your heart and soul for your eternal salvation, would you dare to turn over that difficult situation to him too as well? This text wants us to do so. It wants us to do so. And so it, I think it helps us to understand here that he is wise in what he allows. God knows why he has brought that into our life. He is trying to help us to grow. And the growing is hurting. He knows that. And he is mighty in what he does too. For what he does is beautiful. It is full recovery here. And therefore, I would plead with you as I would plead with my own heart. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. 1 Peter 3.12 This is the assurance that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And uh, and we know that if He hears us, whatever we ask, 
we know that we have what we have asked of him. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. Do you trust that word? I know you would fight for it. I know that you don't like anyone that says that the word of God has errors in it. I know that you don't like anyone that comes along and says that it's not infallible, that it is not from God himself. I know that you would go against someone like that. I'm asking about putting your life there too as well, not just our intellects. I'm asking that that word become a reality for the issue that you came into God's house with today. And so I need to know that the God of Elijah is my God. Second Kings 2.14, as he was being taken up into heaven, Elisha, his understudy, asked, where now is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is that God? Is he my God? Is he your God? Is the God who worked for this widow woman the same Lord that works here in Boise and in the surrounding communities? And I know with all your heart and all your soul, you answer as I do. He is my Lord. Then let us acknowledge him as such. Again, the old problem is that we have taken our issues, the, the crush of the burden of this life, and we've pushed them higher on the scale and on the thermometer, and God has fallen And that's idolatry. That's idolatry. And I need to reverse that. I need a whole new picture of God and a whole new picture of the validity of His Word and that that Word might turn around and I might hear it in all of its beauty this day. Would you say with this woman, as she does in verse 24, now I know, now I know, now I personally know. It's not an intellectual thing here. She uses the word for personal experiential knowledge. You're a man of God, and besides, the word of the Lord from your lips is truth. It's dependable. And may that be so for you and for me. Take that dependability of the word of God for the the outreach this week here in Boise as men and women come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Trust him for those hungry hearts of pastors who come and lay workers who are going to join us in a whole week's conference here that God might incite a whole new fire in their lives. May that word be dependable for them and for their congregations. And take that word for the missionaries that go forth from this church and for a whole cadre of men and women who still are not known. But you would dare to trust and pray to God that he would give a dozen, two dozen men and women, first career, second career, third career, to go out and that we, from them would come a mighty moving of the Spirit of God in this day. That word is dependable for them too. If you and I will trust, if you and I will, will in prayer earnestly beseech the Lord of the harvest that he will do such. Well, you've been most patient. But on the other hand, it's the most wonderful Lord to talk about too. And a most excellent word that he has given to us. Receive it, and may God help us to understand it. Amen. Lord, again, what an encouragement and what a comfort to us to hear this word from your word. We thank you so much. We ask for obedient hearts and willing spirits to respond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.